1: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
3: Hello and welcome. It is Eric Erickson here. The Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to be a part of the program, 877-97-ERIC. 877-973-7425. That's the phone number. Yes, we do take your calls. Uh, can I want to go back to Lev Parnas to begin the show today because I, I saw somebody. I can't remember who it was on Twitter. I don't want to take credit for it myself. I'm, I'm a little jealous that I didn't come up with it myself. Uh, but Lev Parnas. Lev Parnas is the uh, guy who is under federal indictment, and he is now a media roadshow spectacle. Y'all. It somebody said it on Twitter, and, and I can't remember who it, who it is, but maybe it was Beckett Adams from the Washington Examiner, but they're so right. This is Michael Avenatti 2.0. The You know, Avenatti, Michael Avenatti, Stormy Daniels' lawyer who went on and he was going to run for president, and and everybody was just fawning over him. They loved him. Brian Stetler at, at CNN, oh, this guy is presidential caliber, he said something like that. Um they loved Michael Avenatti. He was the darling of the media because he would come on and bash the president and say all the things the media wanted to say, but he he, he had the credible veneer of being a lawyer and on and on it goes. And uh, it turns out he was just a swindler. Uh, he's He's been arrested now. Uh, he's been arrested twice. The feds arrested him at a California state bar hearing the other day. And the media, it, it's, there, there's no apologies from the media over Michael Avenetti. and that is Lev Parnas. The media is treating him the same way. So Chris Murphy is a very hyper-partisan senator from Connecticut. He's going to vote guilty on the president in impeachment already. His mind is made up. Uh, He wanted to impeach the president last year. And even he listened to this. This is this is uh, Senator Murphy. Listen,
4: I I don't know, um, you know, whether Lev Parnas is, is completely credible, except for the fact that everything that he has said is consistent with the testimony given by the witnesses in the House. Um, We have known for a long time that everyone involved in U.S.-Ukraine policy was working towards the same goal. And that goal was to get the Ukrainians to interfere in the 2020 election and to withhold their access to the White House and their access to taxpayer-funded aid until they agreed to it. Lev Parnas fills in some of the details about how that was operationalized, but nothing he has said is inconsistent with the testimony from the House. And so in that regard, he looks like a very credible witness.
3: Okay, okay. I want to play this one more time. Now that you've heard it in full, I, I, I'm, I'm going to stop it when we get to the relevant point.
4: Listen, I, I don't know, um, you know whether Lev Parnas is completely credible, except for the fact that everything that he has said is consistent with the testimony given by the witnesses in the House.
3: Everything he said is consistent with the testimony given by the witnesses in the house. You know that rung a bell with me, and I want to go back to his interview with Rachel Maddow and with Anderson Cooper. Let's review. This is Lev Parnas the other night at Rachel Maddow. MSNBC wants you to know Rachel Maddow has gotten massive ratings from this.
0: He's a key witness to this. Is about John his Bolton conversation right here. with Zelensky when he came back and why he left or got fired or however you want to look at that.
1: Let me make sure I understand what you're saying. When Vice President Pence went over there on September 1st, again, in President Trump's stead, you believe, or you have reason to believe, that Vice President Pence was tasked at that meeting with getting President Zelensky to announce investigations of Joe Biden specifically. Yes. And to tell him that they wouldn't get their aid until they...
0: I don't know exactly what he was – but it was all it's, – it's all the yeah, same. Wait,
3: wait, wait. wait. So, so first, this is what he believes. This is what he knows. And I said Bolton. He meant vice president. Uh, that, that he knew the vice president did this. And now suddenly uh, when Rachel Maddow d- drills into the specifics, he doesn't actually know.
0: So, uh, uh, the, uh, like I said, the aid itself was something that I think the president decided to do, uh, what's it called? But it was, I think, a reaction to that. There was no uh, announcement being made.
3: He thinks it was a reaction. Note, notice, notice the language there. This was in The New York Times and this was covered by the witnesses in public testimony uh, that the president did withhold the money. And the speculation was that it was because of the investigation. And so Parnas goes from knowing the vice president gave gave the instruction to not knowing the vice president gave the instruction to thinking that the vice president gave the instruction to thinking that the reason was because the president wanted the investigation. That part was in the media.
0: There's so many attempts and so many promises.
1: So holding the aid was the president's own sort of innovation to to, to add to the leverage, I to add so. to the pressure.
3: He thinks, he thinks now, he thinks. Again, he thinks he doesn't know,
1: but yet he's been trying to tell everybody he knows. People like you and so. the vice president and Mr. Giuliani yes. and everybody else involved in this effort was putting on the Ukrainian Correct. government. Correct. When you say that Mr. Bolton... Um, May have things to say about this. Did Mr. Bolton know that Vice President Pence was supposed to secure that agreement from Zelensky that he'd announced these investigations?
3: Uh, Notice how Rachel Maddow, the, the guy has just said he didn't actually know about what the vice president was doing. And then Rachel Maddow now essentially presumes that he did and that it was the vice president who was doing it. Major deconstruction here going on with the truth. If we're supposed to get the truth here, this isn't getting the truth. This is getting speculation and rumor and taking speculation and rumor and converting it into the truth. That's what Rachel Maddow was doing with this guy here, trying to make it a, a, a fact that it was the vice president who was going to tell Zelensky in a private meeting that he had to investigate Biden. We actually know that's not the case. And if Lev Parnas has told Rachel Maddow first that that's what the vice president was going to do, and then immediately said he didn't actually know. You just heard him say, I, I don't actually know. And yet Maddow is accepting it as fact that that's what the vice
0: president did. I don't know exactly what Mr. Bolton knew, but I know Mr. Bolton Wait,
3: Wait, 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 wait. This this is a guy who said he knew what Bolton knew, and, and now suddenly he doesn't know. Now listen, here's here's where he goes into I think again. Notice his use of, I know, and and, and, I don't know, and then I think, and now he's going to go into, I think, and I know, and listen, I'm going to just play this. I'm going to stop talking over it, and I want you to listen, because what you're going to hear is, when he says he thinks, he's going on speculation in the media. When he says, I know... He's going on the facts reported in the testimony. This is a guy who knew what had happened. He knew the testimony.
0: Definitely involved in the loop because of the firing of Maria Ivanovich. Uh, also, his interactions with uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, they started butting heads. That was in the press. Uh, and uh, he was not agreeing. It was, uh, I mean, from Venezuela to Ukraine, Bolton didn't agree with Rudy with Giuliani on the way of dealing with it.
3: Okay, I lied. I am going to stop again. Notice how he said from Venezuela. Venezuela to Ukraine how does he know about Venezuela to Ukraine that was actually in the New York Times that was in the New York Times in in, in the stories about uh, Bolton's ouster he and Giuliani were butting
1: heads
0: on Venezuela to Ukraine there was tension there there was there was definitely tension but
1: you believe he knows what the administration was pressuring Ukraine to do
0: Bolton hundred percent. He knows what
1: happened there. That
3: was, that was with Rachel Manow. Now listen to the exchange with Anderson Cooper, who is more skeptical of him.
5: In terms of who knew about what you were doing in, in Ukraine, did Vice President Pence know? Of course. Because, I mean, his office has said he, he was unaware of, you know, that he had met with Zelensky after not going to the inauguration, but he wasn't delivering a, a message of a quid pro quo.
0: Look, again, like I said, I'm not here to debate. I'm here to get the truth out. I got my records. But I'd how openly... do you
5: know that the vice president would have known what Giuliani was up to? What you because were
0: up to. we would speak every day. I knew everything that was going on. I mean, after Rudy would speak with the president or, or come from the White House, I was the first person he briefed.
3: So. He doesn't actually know that the vice president knew what was going on. He just talked to Rudy Giuliani, but then listen to what he says.
0: I mean, we had a relationship. We were that close. I mean, the, I mean, we were together from morning to night. I mean, he took me, I mean, every so, interview he would do, I would be sitting over there while he was doing the interviews. I mean. So Giuliani knew
5: everything you were doing? Everything he was doing.
0: You're saying Vice President Pence knew? Well, I don't know if my vice president knew everything we were
3: See, see, he, he knew the vice president knew the vice president knew. But now he's, I, I don't know that the vice president knew everything.
0: Well, I'm sure he was. But he knew he was about in the a loop. quid pro quo. Of course, he knew. Everybody knew. Everybody, everybody. That was close to Trump knew the, uh, that this was a thorn in the side and this was a serious situation.
3: Wait, so wait, 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 wait. He just said the vice president knew about the quid pro quo. But now he actually is saying that, well, everyone knew it was a thorn in the president's side. Not that they knew about the quid pro quo. He's just he's just shifted his entire understanding. Bolton. That's
0: Bolton. Mulvaney. Mulvaney. Uh, Bolton, I don't think, agreed with it. I think uh, there's certain people that agreed with it and didn't agree with it. He, he called
5: it a drug deal, according to
0: Fiona Hill. I think Bolton is a very important witness because I think between me— Okay,
5: we, we can
3: stop there. Notice how he then shifts to what he knows, and what he knows is what Fiona Hill and others said in their testimony. This is Michael Avenatti all over again. And at least Anderson Cooper was was skeptical of him as opposed to Rachel Maddow. Here's a little more about him and, and in his, his heartbreak. I mean, he's like a scorned lover sort of situation when it comes to the president. Listen to this.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I, when, when the FBI came to my house, uh, to read and my wife felt embarrassed because they said I had a shrine to him. I mean, I had pictures all over. I mean, I, I idolized him. I mean, I thought he was the savior. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, did you think you were friends? Absolutely. I mean, again, I went from being a top donor from being at all the events where we would just socialize, to becoming a close friend of Rudy Giuliani's, to eventually becoming his ally and his asset on the ground in Ukraine. The, the pre- so,
3: so he has a shrine to the president and pictures, and the FBI is 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 all set, or, or were they a shrine to Giuliani? I, I don't know, but. I mean, this is a guy, I mean, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Hell hath no fury like Left Parnas scorned. He, he knows, he doesn't know, he thinks, he he reads the press, he
5: tells the media what they want to hear. The has said, when you were arrested, the president of the United States said uh,
0: he didn't know you.
2: I don't know those gentlemen. Now it's possible I have a picture with them because I have a picture with everybody. I don't know them.
0: The truth is out now, thank God. Yesterday was a big day for us. I thank God every day. I was worried that that day is not going to come. I thought they were going to shut me up, make me look like the scapegoat, and try to blame me for stuff that I wasn't done. But with God's help and the great legal team that I have besides me, we were able to get the information out, and now it's out there. So I welcome him to say that even more. Every time he says that, I'll show him another picture.
3: Uh, he hadn't thus far. Maybe we'll see some more. Y'all, this remember the Avenatti situation. Avenatti came on, told the media everything they wanted to hear, and it turns out the man, according to the accusations at least, was was taken from his clients and, and doing things his clients didn't want him to do, shaking people down, building himself up, trying to make himself a media darling. This is amazing. And the media fallen for it all over again. It is the second coming of Michael Avenatti. And the media is making the same mistakes willfully. Uh, now, I, I want to go to Jake Tapper. Jake Tapper on CNN yesterday makes the point that, that everyone in the media should be making.
6: All right, Alex Marquardt, thanks so much. Uh, let's chew over all this. Uh, Neil, let me start with you because we can't ignore. Parnas has a serious credibility yes, problem. He's under is. indictment for campaign finance charges. Uh, the foreign minister of Ukraine told CNN's Christiana Mapor that he doesn't trust a word Parnas is saying. And yet I see people out there in social media, Democrats, acting as if this guy is the second coming of Theodore Roosevelt or something.
1: Yes.
3: Yeah. Listen, so one of the the key details here that people are missing that that Tapper's picking up on here and and has expounded on 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 social media is Parnas began the undermining of all the stuff before, before ever coming into contact with Rudy and and the president, that the prior Ukrainian administration had issues with Parnas. Y'all. The media is willing to be played here. It is Michael Avenatti all over again. They're willing to build up a dishonest person because the dishonest person is in the orange man bad camp. They are willing to use him to tear down the president without any skepticism of him, without any skepticism of his claims. And I've just walked you through two separate interviews with two separate reporters where you hear him shifting within sentences from I know to I don't know to I think to speculation. It is stunning that every time he would say I know something, it was either in the press or he then immediately reversed to say he didn't actually know. This man is putting on a show for the media. He's trying to build sympathy within La Résistance, and it's gonna come back to bite them just like it did with Michael Avenatti. The phone number here, if you want to be a part of the program, eight seven seven nine seven Eric eight seven seven nine seven three seven four two five. I guess you guys need a recipe for the weekend, don't you? I will come up with a recipe to send to you. Uh, I in the next hour is stick around with me because I had an exclusive uh, hour, roughly hour long interview with Governor Kemp shortly after he delivered his state of the state yesterday. I carried the speech live here on the program yesterday and then uh, rushed down to the state capitol, sneaked in where Speaker Ralston couldn't see me and uh, got into the governor's office, had a great time with him. And uh, We will get into some of the points of his speech as well. Uh, but I want to play for you the governor's interview in the next hour. Uh, right now, though, impeachment. Yes, it did happen. It is historic. Even if we can ridicule the Democrats for doing it, this did happen yesterday afternoon.
2: With you for the trial of the president of the United States, I'm now prepared to take the oath. Will you place your left hand on the Bible
7: and raise your right hand? Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald John Trump, President of the United States, now pending, you will do impartial justice according to the Constitution
2: and the laws? So help you, God. I do. God bless you. Thank you very much.
3: That was Chuck Grassley swearing in John Roberts.
2: Uh, at this time, I will administer the oath to all senators in the chamber in conformance with Article 1, Section 3, Clause 6 of the Constitution and the Senate's impeachment rules. Will all senators now stand or remain standing uh, and raise their right hand? Do you solemnly swear that in all things appertaining to the trial of the impeachment of Donald John Trump, President of the United States, now pending, You will do impartial justice according to the Constitution and laws. So help you God. The clerk will call the names in groups of four. And senators will present themselves at the desk to sign the oath book.
3: Uh,
6: Over to you, Jake Tapper. Senate likes to keep records. And the oath is that they receive the information and and decide impartially, objectively. Well, there's the special uh, impeachment trial oath that they take and it's it's different it's different from their general oath of office
8: that's elizabeth warren uh signing the oath book right there
6: uh, they swear to do impartial justice swear to do impartial justice although many of them on the both sides of the aisle have already said how they're going to vote uh when it comes to removing the president let's continue to listen
3: (laughs) yes I mean, that's the thing. This is all pomp, circumstance, spectacle. The media loves it. It is historic, and I don't want to downplay the, the, the historic nature of it. It is only the second time in American history we've had a televised impeachment. I suspect that uh, these things are just going to speed up over time, and we're going to have more and more of these over time. Y'all, eh, I we're not really going to get out of this what the Democrats want to get out of this. Uh, what do they want to get out of this? They want to get out of this a, a spectacle to heart- hurt the president for re-election uh, they want to get out of this some witnesses. Dan Abrams is one of ABC's legal analysts. Actually, uh, he's definitely of the left, but not a bad guy. Uh, listen, listen to Dan Abrams.
6: John Bolton's not testifying in front of the Senate. It's not, it's, Positive. It, it's not
3: happening. It is
6: not happening. He knows exactly. He's a very smart guy. He knows how the process works. He knew. He didn't say, I'll volunteer. He said, if subpoenaed. So when people say he's offered to testify, what do you mean? He's agreed to abide by a subpoena. If he were to get testified by the He system. could go to a
2: press conference now. Correct, if he correct.
6: So, but what does that mean, though? That means that, okay, let's assume that they get the 51 votes and they say, we want John Bolton to testify. He shows up, and then there's going to be an argument on immunity, and then there's going to be an argument on executive privilege, and the president is going to say, it is my executive privilege um, here, it is not his decision. And it's going to work its way through the courts, and they're going to say we don't have the time. And John Bolton's not testifying. Is testify.
2: it definitely going to work its way through the courts, Kate Shaw, or could the Chief Justice he make could, a ruling? He's, he's, in not, in going to. he's, he's going not going to. i
1: not going to. <laughs> I think Bolton could still testify. Uh, <laughs> I think there could be assertions of privilege, and then I think the Chief would be in a very difficult position to just say, you know, Senators, you work it out, or let's let the court process run its course. I think there'd be a strong argument that the comparative advantage on ruling on this important constitutional question about the privilege, the way that co- the president's Communications with his advisors are subject to disclosure, and where and how—that's a legal and constitutional question that the chief justice is better situated to answer than the members of but the, the Senate. But, so but he but the would chief feel justice
6: doesn't want to answer but, that question, and as a feel, result,
1: he won't. I, I, I think he may feel that it looks too political to try to avoid answering the question, and that he will see.
3: See, 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 see. Uh, That's left wing fan fiction here. Dan Abrams is right. The chief justice cannot make these unilateral decisions. There is a Supreme Court of the United States that makes these decisions and he's going to defer to his colleagues on the court. Uh, It is left wing fan fiction to believe that the chief justice is somehow going to exercise dictatorial control over the impeachment process and put the senators in their place. He can't. This is a Senate impeachment trial and they reserve the sole power of impeachment of conviction. It is Eric Erickson here, the Eric Erickson Show across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you would like to call in, 877 97 Eric, 877-973-7425. I need to read you a quote. And I'm going to apologize before I read you the quote because this isn't something I'm comfortable reading. It, it it doesn't have profanity in it or anything like that. It's not something I can't say on the radio. It's just something I'm not comfortable saying, but I need to say it. And I I need to, if you have children with you, I want to give you a parental warning here. It's not appropriate for kids. And I'm I'm going to read it to you. Uh, I will give you a countdown warning so that you can have your radio turned down. You only need to turn your radio down for 15 seconds. Uh, If you have kids in the car, this is on you. It's not on me. I'm not going to feel guilty when you call and complain and say, uh, I can't believe you just read that on radio. Uh, My kid was listening. Well, you're being warned here, folks. I'm waving the red flag. You're going to have you're going to I'm going to give you a countdown. You're going to turn your radio down for 15 seconds and then you're going to turn it back up. This is a this is a quote from Bernie Sanders. This is something Bernie Sanders wrote. And I'm going to read it to you. And you're going to be horrified and you're going to wonder why is the media not talking about this. But it's not appropriate if the kids are with you. And and this is your warning. It'll be I mean, it's not even 15 seconds, but out of abundance of caution, 15 seconds. So, all right, are you ready? I'm going to do the countdown. It's on you. Well, once, once I get past one and you haven't turned your radio down, this is on you. Five, four, three, two, one. Bernie Sanders now. A woman enjoys intercourse with her man as she fantasizes being raped by three men simultaneously. That was Bernie Sanders, writing in February of 1972. Bernie Sanders wrote rape fantasies, wrote explicit material, and... There is a line of attack to make on Bernie Sanders on that, and notice how the media avoids ever dealing with it. That is that what I read. I'm not going to repeat it again because people have raised the radio again. I don't want to make them turn it back down. That would be bad radio. Um, but that is a Bernie Sanders quote. If you want to read it for yourself, you can go into my Twitter timeline at E W Erickson. You can see it for yourself. E W E R I C K S O N. It's down there. I've retweeted it from a friend of mine who gave it to me. That that is Bernie Sanders. From the 1970s, and that is one of many quotes like that from Bernie Sanders. And I would submit to you there is a line of attack to be made on Bernie Sanders about that. But that's—the Elizabeth Warren stuff is not it. I want to go back to the CNN debate from the other day, from the 14th. And I want to play you the the Sanders exchange— And then how CNN handles it with Elizabeth Warren.
1: CNN
7: reported yesterday that and Senator Sanders, Senator Warren confirmed in a statement that in 2018, you told her that you did not believe that a woman could win the election. Why did you say that? Well, as a matter of fact, I didn't say it. Uh, And I don't want to waste a whole lot of time on this because this is what Donald Trump and maybe some of the media want. Uh, Anybody knows me, knows that it's incomprehensible that I would think that a woman could not be president of the United States. Go to YouTube today. There's a video of, of me 30 years ago talking about how a woman could become president of the United States. Oh, and we got some Bernie Sanders writings too. In 2015, I deferred, in fact, to Senator Warren. There was a movement to draft Senator Warren to run for president. And you know what? I said, stayed back. Senator Warren decided not to run, and I did. I did run afterwards. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by three million votes. How could anybody in a million years not believe that a woman could become president of the United States? And let me be very clear. If any of the women on this stage or any of the men on this stage win the nomination, I hope that's not the case. I hope it's me. <laughs> but if they do... I will do everything in my power to make sure that they are elected in order to defeat the most dangerous president in the history of our country. So, Senator Sanders, Senator Sanders, I do want to be clear here. You're saying that you never told Senator Warren that a woman could not win the election.
5: That is correct. Now,
3: you're going to hear that little excerpt again there at the end as as CNN asks, goes to Elizabeth Warren and listen to how they treat it. In order
7: to defeat the most dangerous president in the history of our country so senator sanders senator sanders i do want to be clear here you're saying that you never told senator warren that a woman could not win the election that is correct senator warren what did you think when senator sanders told you a woman could not win the election
1: i disagreed bernie is my friend and i am not here to try to fight with bernie but look this question about whether or not a woman can be president has been raised, and it's time for us to attack it head-on. Um, and I think the best way to talk about who can win is by looking at people's winning record. So, can a woman beat Donald Trump? Look at the men on this stage. Collectively, they have lost 10 elections. <laughs> the only people on this stage who have won every single election that they've been in are the women, Amy so
3: and true. Me. So, true. so it is notable that CNN just took it as a matter of fact. Took it as, hey, um, Elizabeth Warren, when Bernie says this to you, what did you think? Here's the problem. The media loves to loves to tell us Donald Trump is a liar, loves to tell us what Donald Trump says isn't true, loves to fact check Donald Trump. Elizabeth Warren is a serial fablist. Elizabeth Warren routinely makes things up about her life. Remember, she said she was fired for being pregnant. And it turns out the record showed they actually offered her a job back. Remember when she said she was uh, Native American and she did the DNA test and members of the media came out and said, oh, she just owned the president. She proved she actually is a Native American. And it was within like four hours people pointed out, no, um, one 1024th Native American doesn't mean you're a Native American. And and the the Cherokee tribe came out and was offended by it. And then he's like, oh, I guess she screwed this one up. Uh, Her bid for the presidency ended
0: today.
3: Uh, the, The schizophrenia of the press when it comes to this, but it's always trying to protect Elizabeth Warren and it's always believing Elizabeth Warren. It's always whatever Elizabeth Warren says is true. And Warren is a serial fablist. Yet the media loves her and holds her to a completely different standard than Donald Trump. She lies time and time again. And Bernie Sanders say what you will about him but he's not really a liar he's he's a communist but he's not a liar he's a truthful communist he really does want to bring on the revolution have you seen the seen the story of the the Bernie Sanders field rep uh, who said, essentially, you're either going to you're either gonna get down with the Sanders revolution or you're going to die in the streets, that they're going to kill you, um, that we're going to send people to gulags, that Stalin had gulags, and gulags were re-education camps, particularly for rich people. They really weren't bad. Only the CIA told you they were bad, but that's not true. And the Sanders campaign came out and said, hey, no, uh, this guy, he he's really a nobody. And then uh, Project Veritas, the geniuses, they, they released the second part of it where the guy talks about how the Sanders-Iowa coordinator, for the Sanders campaign bailed the field coordinator out of jail for drugs. Got arrested for drugs and the if he was a nobody, the coordinator for the Iowa campaign would not have bailed him out of jail. Folks, we need to accept that the media is, is not quite as honest as some people would have us believe. We need to recognize that they're doing everything they can to protect Elizabeth Warren. But I got to tell you, Bernie Sanders articulated his case very well. And he's right. Objectively, Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by a couple million votes in 2016. She did. She beat Donald Trump with a popular vote. So why on earth would he say, he's not a dumb man, why would he say a woman can't win in 2020? It, it doesn't make any sense. And we we are, everyone is certain, and even the media is willing to say that uh, Elizabeth Warren is the one who who is the source for this. She made it up because it was a one-on-one private meeting. Elizabeth Warren now says, in effect, that uh, Bernie Sanders did do this. And the media's covering for her, that they're accepting as, as truth that Bernie Sanders said this, why don't they go to the rape fantasies? Is it possible that if the American public knew that Bernie Sanders wrote rape fantasies, that they might be put off by him? Oh, and listen, I, I can hear you. I, I can hear the progressives listening right now. You know, I had a lot of, I, I try to be accessible so progressives at least understand the conservative mind here. Um, um, I can hear you screaming, but the president was caught on video with the grab him by the, you know what? That's true. And the American public has already digested that information and they still went with him. I get that. The American public they 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 don't like it a majority of them voted against him in 2016, but that's already been there, but he's now not a hypothetical. he's actually president of the United States. he has a record to run on uh, not not a not a video with Billy Bush um what's going to happen when this comes out because you know if Bernie Sanders is the nominee it's going to come out and I suspect it's going to start coming out now. The reality is, on the Democratic side, privately they're worried about Bernie Sanders. And as much as the media loves Elizabeth Warren, I mean, they're, they have been trying to make Elizabeth Warren happen for years. I remember in 2016 they were trying to make her happen, and, and she stood aside for Hillary Clinton. But, I mean, she was – she President Obama appointed her. There were all sorts of celebrity profiles of her. She was taken back that Massachusetts seat that Ted Kennedy had held that Scott Brown won. She was a hero of the left, a darling of the left. The media loved her. She was a truth teller. She was honest. She was taking on the corporations. On and on and on it went. They've been trying to make her happen for years. But now they have more reason to because more and more they're realizing Bernie Sanders has too much baggage, too long of a record, too much of a record. You had Bernie Sanders. I played played you the clip the other day. If you haven't heard it, uh, l- let me play this clip for you again. This is Bernie Sanders from 1986, where he is lamenting that John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy, was more stridently anti-communist than Richard Nixon, and that upset him. Listen to this.
9: But I remember, for some reason or was being very excited when, when Fidel Castro made the revolution in Cuba. When I was a kid, and I remember reading that and it was just seemed right and appropriate that poor people were rising up against rather ugly rich people. And I remember, again, very distinctly, a very distinct feeling. I was watching the debates. You remember the famous Nixon-Kennedy uh, debates? That was the first time <coughs> in the presidential can- candidates actually debated, and I was becoming increasingly interested in politics. Didn't know much, but was interested. I remember sitting in the student lounge at our dormitory watching the debate, and at that time, well, we can talk about Cuba now, I was very excited and impressed by the, the Cuban revolution, and there was... Kennedy and Nixon talking about which particular method they should use about uh, destroying the revolution. And I remember the irony as we've we learned the history later on, Kennedy was saying that Nixon was too soft on communism, to I mean, pick up a point that Rick was making, in Cuba. We should deal firmly with Fidel Castro, and Nixon was playing the role of, hey, you got to be patient, you know, you can't do these things, you've got to negotiate, but of course what he was upset about is that secretly they were planning the Bay of Pigs invasion right then. But for security reasons, he come, couldn't come out and say, we're already planning the destruction of the Cuban Revolution. Don't worry about it. So he, he was the liberal, and Kennedy was playing the conservative. And actually, you know, there, when you read novels, people say there's a sick feeling in your stomach. Usually, I'm sufficiently unemotional not to be sick. But I actually got up in the room and almost left the puke. Because for the first time in my adult life, what I was seeing is the Democrats and the Republicans, both of them. And of course, as Rick points out, Kennedy was the flashing young liberal. And what we were seeing right before our my eyes way, way back then. And I didn't know anything about politics, but clearly that there really wasn't a a whole lot of of difference between the two. Wow. Wow.
3: That's Bernie Sanders uh, upset that John Kennedy was anti-communist. Bernie Sanders admitting he was a big fan of the Cuban Revolution. There goes Florida. We've taken Florida off the table. Wait a second. I I used to know these things. Man, the amount of things that I have forgotten. How many electoral college votes does Florida have? The electoral college votes. Oh, 29. That is you're now down 29 electoral college votes in Florida when they when when Miami when Miami hears that he was against the Cuban revolution, or he supported the Cuban revolution. He supported Fidel Castro. There you go. There you go. Uh, there is plenty of opposition research out there about Bernie Sanders. And I suspect uh, the media now understands that he, he, him as the nominee would be full Jeremy Corbyn. It would be damaging to the Democratic Party. They're going to do everything they can to take him out. So in addition to always wanting Elizabeth Warren to happen, always wanting to make Elizabeth Warren happen, they now have to stick with Elizabeth Warren, the fabulist, against Bernie Sanders because he's gone up at the polls. Some of the local polling now has him ahead of Joe Biden. The media is going to freak out because ultimately they want to beat Donald Trump and they know Bernie Sanders can't do it. The polling shows it. I want to read you a story in the Washington Post where democracy dies in the darkness. Kimberly Alford says she typically plans big birthday celebrations for her daughter. But when Kyla Kinney turned 15 late last month, the Louisville mother opted to organize a smaller gathering of friends and family at Texas Roadhouse, one of her daughter's favorite restaurants. Ahead of the party, Alfred instructed a bakery to decorate a cake with colors that pop, she recalls. It just so happened that the cake's rainbow motif mirrored the design of her daughter's sweater, and she took a picture of Kyla smiling next to it to commemorate the December 30th party. Now, Alford alleges the seemingly innocuous photo caused Kyla to be expelled from Whitfield Academy, a private Christian school in Louisville, Kentucky, where her daughter was a freshman. In an email to the family on January 6th, the Academy's head of school, Bruce Jacobson, wrote that Kyla's enrollment was terminated effective immediately because of a social media post. Alford said an image on her Facebook post was included as an attachment to the email. The W.A. administration has been made aware of a recent picture posted on social media that demonstrates a posture, morality, and cultural acceptance contrary to that of Whitfield Academy's beliefs. We made it clear that any further promotion, celebration, or other action and attitudes counter to Whitfield's philosophy will not be tolerated. The school later said in a statement the decision was a result of two years of conduct violations but failed to elaborate. Alford said she was aware that the rainbow-striped flag is a symbol of the LGBTQ community but emphasized that her daughter's matching rainbow cake and sweater was simply a coincidental aesthetic and not intended to mean anything more. The expulsion was first covered this week by local news outlets including the Courier Journal. Now, I have to tell you uh, the the explanation was not apparently it was apparently insufficient for Whitfield Academy, a pre-K through 12 school affiliated with local Highland Baptist Church, a request to speak directly with the school's headmaster was not returned. Uh, Notice that Whitfield uh, said that there have been two years' worth of problems with the girl, um, and this was it. It, it, This wasn't a first-time infraction. Clearly, there is more there. The school is now under attack from The Washington Post for um, being hostile to the LGBTQ community. They keep adding letters, the alphabet gang. Uh, Here's the thing. Remember Kermit Gosnell, the abortionist in Philadelphia who was uh, inducing labor as women sat over toilets? I mean, literally, this is not made up. Kermit Gosnell was inducing labor in women and would have them sit on the toilet, give birth to the child, and then flush it. That's actually what Kermit—I'm trying not to gag now that I'm thinking. The Kermit Gosnell, it, women died in his care? He was essentially a serial killer, the the amount of children killed by Kermit Gosnell. The Washington Post refused to cover the story. It was getting national attention, and the Washington Post refused to cover the story because they said it was a local crime story in Philadelphia outside of the purview of the Washington Post. When the Southern Baptist Mission Board poured money into disaster relief in uh, Florida and Georgia and Alabama after Hurricane Michael— they were the f- literally the first nonprofit on the ground in those areas. They they beat out even the Salvation Army, which is usually first. The Southern Baptist um, Mission Board showed up, and the Washington Post refused to write anything about it because it, it wasn't relevant to the the readers of the Washington Post. Here is a private school in Louisville, Kentucky, and the Washington Post has decided that though Kermit Gosnell was a local crime story not worth their coverage, and the Southern Baptists beating the federal government and private corporations into Florida, Georgia, and Alabama after a major natural disaster was not a story, a school disciplinary matter at a private school in Louisville, Kentucky is something relevant? Do we need more examples of media bias and the culture wars and everything else? Uh, they're trying to, to go after the school, and, and clearly there's more to the story, but they don't care. Okay, a quick time out for a new sponsor I'm actually excited about, but it's confession time in the process of me being excited about the sponsor. So, you know, a- after all the lung stuff I had several years ago, it took me a long time before I was cleared to actually go back and do serious exercise at the gym, and I finally decided to go back to CrossFit about three months ago. Now, I've been paying for the private lessons instead of going to the open hours uh, because I don't want anybody to see my fat behind working out right now uh, as I'm doing burpees and... Uh, double-unders, and all the other awful stuff. Uh, but I'm only going three days a week because it's expensive to do the private stuff. i got to have to do something at home because i got a couple days a week where i got to be burning calories when I'm not doing it. And I was really thinking about the Peloton option, but I don't want to pay a ton for Peloton, and it's expensive. Well, I discovered Echelon, and now I'm really actually pleased that Echelon is a sponsor of the show. It's a live and on-demand studio classes in your home. You can use your iPad. Uh, you can put them on your fitness bike. You can put them on... Uh, they've got them on the Apple TV or, or your TV. You can stream it. You can get them on your iPad. They've even got one of the mirror options where you can do the exercises in the mirror. Join hundreds of thousands of people, myself included now, Uh, Getting Fit with Echelon, you don't have to pay a ton for Peloton. You can get an Echelon bike today for under $1,000. So go to EchelonFit.com slash Eric. Learn about their limited time, free Apple iPad, and complete details of the exclusive offer. Echelon, it's your time. Make the most of it, and don't go broke doing it. That's E-E-E-C-H-E-L-O-N. E-C-H-E-L-O-N Fit dot com slash Eric echelonfit.com slash Eric y'all I'm if I can do it you can do it it's great and we'll get in shape together hello and welcome it is Eric Erickson here the second hour of the Eric Erickson show across the state of Georgia coming to you from well my studio in Atlanta today I'm not in Macon beamed over to my flagship station WGAU in Athens Georgia and then broadcast out to all the points of Georgia I tell you you can go from Chattanooga to Lakeland Florida now and hear my voice on 75 the whole way down that really freaks me out. Uh it should freak you out too. <laughs> the phone number if you want to be a part of the program 877-97 Eric 877-973 7425 there is some breaking news here at 6 after the hour the president has announced his impeachment team will include uh Kenneth Starr Alan Dershowitz and Robert Ray, the former FBI director, uh, Dershowitz, will present the constitutional argument against removing Trump from office. Uh, this is breaking news. There will be more to come on this. I will keep you posted. Right now, though, I want to move on from impeachment, and I want to focus this hour. I waited until this hour. Not all of our stations come on uh, line with the program until this hour, and so I wanted to wait while I had when I had everybody together. For this hour, because yesterday in the 11 o'clock hour, Governor Brian Kemp gave his state of the state address, and we carried it live here on the program so y'all could hear it. This happens every year, and you know, one of the downsides of not having a uh, syndicated radio program that is Georgia-Pacific, is is, 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 not Georgia-Pacific, but Georgia-specific, is to... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> is to, uh, you, you, you can't cover stuff like that, and, and it's a big deal. And I, my master plan is for this to, to be a national program one day, but right now I'm Georgia, so I don't want to focus on Georgia news. And, and so we covered the governor's state of the state live yesterday and so everybody could hear it, and then I rushed over to the state capitol, to his office. Uh, we He has a, a private office and he has a ceremonial office. The pictures you all see are the ceremonial office. And we sat in the ceremonial office and we conducted a radio interview. And I want to play that interview for you now. I've got it divided in segments so it works on radio. I wasn't just going to, like, pretend that we were live and, and whatnot. Um, but I did go over to the office. And we conducted the interview there. And this is my interview with Governor Brian Kemp on his state of the state address. Perhaps. There we go. Governor, I played on the show uh, your state of the state address. And I, I, I kind of I've got it pulled up here. And for those of you just tuning in, I've got Governor Kemp. I'm actually in the office with him, uh, having conducted the state of the state address. And a, a couple of things that I, I, I wanted to get to just up front first, kind of going in the order of your speech, the, the patient's first act, you said, we crafted Georgia-centric healthcare solutions to lower healthcare costs, reduce insurance premiums. And you still... One of the things you want to do, and I know I, I spoke to the lieutenant governor as well, one of the things he wants to do is more free market reform. I, I continue to hear stories around the country of doctors who, they post their price list and say, if you come in for this, it's it's worth this, or what have you. And w- we don't know what it's worth until, I mean, <laughs> weeks after you've, you've got the bill.
10: Well, we talked a lot about transparency in health care today. Of course, we did that last session as well when we passed over 20 health care bills, some of them dealing with transparency but i really wanted to make sure people realized all the things that we did last year that are kind of taking us into this year to build off of that and certainly the patients first act the ability for us to work with the trump administration in dc to get waivers to obamacare and uh, also to medicaid so that we can work on lower private sector health insurance costs for hard working georgians but then also have a pathway where people can get off of Medicaid and move on to a private plan with not falling back when you have one catastrophic event. And a catastrophic event, the folks that are in, in that you know situation could be four or $500, you know, not four or 5,000. So I'm really excited about where we are on healthcare. We've been working on that for nine months now and we're getting really close. Um, hopefully we'll get the waivers approved from the administration pretty soon and we'll be able to keep working. But it, but it is going to free up the private sector marketplace, which is, you know, what the problem is now, I think, with Obamacare. Well, you know, it's just like uh, the other day Nancy Pelosi's budget had more money for Medicaid for Hawaii. I mean, it just continues to throw, you know, throw more money after a program that's not working. I think the thing to do is to reform and to make sure that people that need the help that are in that position have the ability to you know, get on the Medicaid program, but then work them, work their way off of that. And that's what uh, one of our waivers is doing. But the Democrats never mentioned the whole private sector side for the people that are working in our state that can't afford private sector health insurance. And that's the thing that, you know, really continues to blow my mind is, you know, there was only three Democrats that voted for the waivers to help us be able to Lower private sector health insurance costs. And I quite honestly, I just don't know that they have a whole lot of other things to criticize. But we just have a different plan. We have a market-based plan. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot better than us just spending billions of dollars or, you know, four or five hundred million, whatever the number is, that we don't have.
3: Relatedly on, on health care, you you noticed uh, Johnny Isaacson there you you praise him uh, a lot of worthy praise but setting up this professorship at the University of Georgia for parkinson's research
10: yeah we're really excited about that that it was a great way to you know really thank Johnny for his service to our state he's been a great public servant a great Jordan you know served in all the different capacities that I mentioned during the speech but he's also got a terrible disease that has no cure and uh, it's a great way to really honor his service and his life to do this professorship and find a cure to Parkinson's. And uh, certainly appreciate President Jerry Moorhead and the University of Georgia for stepping up and kind of getting the ball started on this. There's a, you know, long battle ahead to be able to do that. But also think us starting the ball rolling here in Georgia can build into some bigger things that potentially we could get some help out of from uh, the federal government as well.
3: Related to that, so just – for listeners to understand, we're gonna go out as a state through UGA, try to recruit at least one to, I'm assuming it's not just gonna be one, but one initially and and build a research program.
10: Right, the professorship usually costs around a half a million dollars and the university's committed to funding that. And uh, we're very thankful for that. I think they, like us, see us building off of that, going and recruiting somebody that, you know, would have the opportunity to come to UGA and to work on Parkinson's disease and finding a cure and then you know us after we fund this or after the university funds the initial program and recruits a professor you know then we can look working i think with the federal government as well on how we can continue to build uh, around that person to really make a, a needed cure for parkinson's and it's not it's not anything that's, you know it's a, it's a long haul it's that medical research is you know very tedious and sometimes takes a long time uh, but this is a great opportunity for our state and um, the University of Georgia.
3: Moving on to education, one of the things you said is let's dismantle the remnants of Common Core, reduce the number of required tests, give teachers the opportunity to actually do what they do best, teach, and give them that pay raise. Given the fiscal constraints the state's been facing and, and, and the cutbacks, do you you think we're going to be able to find the money for a teacher pay raise?
10: Well, we, we have the money in the budget for that. It's a balanced budget. I'm very proud of that. I mean, we i said on the campaign trail that we need to be a state that has an efficient government that we need to streamline it and make it smaller and uh, our budget does that we've been able to meet the four percent and six percent reductions in the two budgets that will pass this year and include the teacher pay raise that was a big commitment that i made i think it's had a big impact already and i think this one will as well and that's really what my priorities are and I, I told people you know sometimes you have to tighten your belt so you can fund your priorities and that what that's what we've done in this budget find you know using innovation asking tough questions like do we really need all these phones or you know do we need to buy these computers this year you know can we get another year out of our motor vehicles can we innovate and do more work with less people you know, Eric, there's tons of vacant jobs in state government that are funded every year that have been vacant for over 18 months now. And so we're using those positions to help fund our priorities because it's obvious if somebody hadn't hired somebody in 18 months and that's a position that we need to look at and go, you know, obviously this isn't needed or you're not going to hire anybody at the, at the level of pay here. So really asking those tough questions to fund our priorities like teacher pay raises you know, the gang task force and uh, our health care initiatives. I don't want you to go
3: down a path that you don't want to go down to after, after giving a good speech that was well-received, but I noticed last year when you were asking for budget cuts, I, I thought it seemed very tactical by some departments as you were incoming to say, well, there's nothing for us to cut. We're just going to fire everybody. Uh, and it almost seemed like you they wanted you to call their bluff, and you did.
10: Well, we did, yep. We sure did. I mean, we had some agencies that came out with furloughs and things of that nature, and we, we uh, heard them out on why they wanted to do that, but we also pushed back and said, that we're not doing that. you got to go back and find the cut somewhere else. Uh, I'm certainly not opposed to reduction in force and reorganizations if it's well thought out. But just to take a blanket, you know, we're going to furlough the whole agency for X many days to make up our four and our six percent in the two different budgets. That is not the approach that we wanted. Even though the cuts were, you know, four percent and six, we wanted agencies to not just do across the board, but really look at things that they that they you know maybe they like doing, but they didn't need to or things where they could get more efficient and save money for the long haul versus just taking the easy way out and doing a furlough day or right. you know, letting a person go if you really needed that position. I
3: don't want you to have to take out a position on the legislation because it only just dropped, but I know there's legislation that has dropped to uh, forgive student loans for teachers working in, in, I think it's 142 of the listed failing schools in the state of Georgia. I thought it was notable the Georgia Federation of Teachers has come out immediately, And opposed to it because it would cover the cost of loans for teachers who go into charter schools as well and there seems to be this continued mentality in the state among some that w- there should be opposition to charter schools that somehow they're depriving kids of, of a good education or a public school education.
10: Yeah I haven't seen the legislation yet I hadn't reviewed the language in it I did see a news article about it and sent it to the policy team so we'll dig in on that one I don't know what the fiscal note is how much it would cost right. where you would get the money to fund something like that, but I'm certainly, you know, look forward to working with the legislature as we move through the process to, you know, see see whether things like that are worthy or not.
3: Now, Governor Deal made a very strong push for charter schools of the state. Mm -hmm. It was notable, particularly when he did the the statewide referendum or constitutional amendment, it was black mothers who joined with Republicans to get it over the line with a lot of Democratic opposition. Uh, Where are you looking at charter schools as far as school reform goes?
10: I think our biggest, um, you know, really push on charter schools is figuring out how to continue to fund them. Uh, Because when you look at the budget numbers of where they were and where, where they're going in this year's budget, we have quite a bit. Of funding for, to continue our charter schools in the state. So that's really, you know, outside of any legislation, that's really the thing that we're, you know, another reason that we have to be efficient so we can continue to fund our priorities like education. And that certainly to me is one of them.
3: Crime and gangs, you had uh, Deborah Ryder in the room whose son Nicholas 10 years old, drive-by shooting. He got killed Living down in Macon, I, these stories are, in fact, I saw per capita the other day that uh, Bibb County and Chicago have the same homicide rate from gang violence now uh, per capita, which is only 142 in, in Bibb County, but still 142 too many. And for a while, before I was on city council in making, we had a prior administration there and also at the state level, uh, some unwillingness to recognize Georgia does have a gang problem. Uh, from your vantage point as governor, how bad is the gang problem in the state?
10: Well, it's bad. I mean, the Mexican drug cartel is, you know, really the one that's pushing all the drugs in that are going to the street gangs that are selling it and pushing it out there and it contributes to human sex trafficking, and all these other bad things, but it's happening everywhere. I mean, there was a high school in Cook County, 100 shots fired that was gang-related. Read the Athens paper this morning, 30 shots fired at one house in a drive-by shooting. And they haven't tied that to a gang yet, but, you know, who goes by a house and fires 30 shots? I mean, it's just unreal what's happening in our state. I wish I could tell your listeners, Eric, everything I knew that was going on right now about gangs, but I just can't. Mm -hmm. But there's going to continue to be more news coming out about different things that we're doing to make a difference, not only as a state with the gang task force, what Vic Reynolds and the GBI are doing, Attorney General Chris Carr, his efforts with us to do that as well. But, you know, people forget, too, our federal prosecutors right now, Uh, that Donald Trump appointed, they are moving the needle on going after street gangs in our state, and they are big partners with us, and we're very grateful for that. B.J. Pack, Bobby Christine, and Charlie Peeler. More from the governor
3: when we come back. Yesterday, I sat down with Governor Brian Kemp in his office shortly after he gave the state of the state. Uh, I had a conversation with him bringing that to you now. Here's more from Governor Kemp from his office yesterday in the Capitol. You mentioned human trafficking and, and drugs, and it's interesting now with legalization of marijuana in Florida uh, for medical use and the situation out west, it does seem like there's an uptick. I, I mean, you've got prosecutors now in Georgia because of the hemp law saying they're not going to enforce uh, possession of marijuana charges, and it, 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 this does seem like it, it's fueling gangs, and at least funding gangs in the state by increasing the availability and also the, the desire to sell drugs in the state.
10: Well, certainly the you know the really scary part of all that is just you know methamphetamine and you know opioid addiction. Heroin, you know, all these other drugs that are out there that are just, you know, get people addicted almost immediately or mm-hmm. kill them. You know, Wait. things laced with fentanyl, and and uh, it is it is amazing what's going on. And it doesn't matter; it's happening in all parts of our states. Just some people don't realize it. Mm-hmm. But if you spend as much time on the road as I do, and talk to law enforcement, and you know, talk to the people in the gang task force, and you know, in Chris Carr's office with, with Hannah and the other gang tasks, or uh, his folks that are working on this. I mean, it's happening every day and they're investigating every day and providing resources. So we're moving the needle now. We just have more work to do. And and part of that's going to be legislatively putting some teeth in the statute to allow the prosecutors to go after these folks a little better.
3: Related to that is the human trafficking issue. I know you and your wife care greatly about it. It's it's the whole reason I ran for city council down in Macon. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of people think it's some sort of moral panic. It's not a big deal. And yet the statistics show it's not only a big deal, but increasingly it's American victims as opposed to imported victims from abroad.
10: Well, you know, Ivanka Trump was in town this week and Marty and I were with her and uh, Secretary Azar and some other folks uh, in the administration from, from D.C., And we heard six or seven different stories from survivors that have gotten to the point in their rehabilitation where they're actually talk every story is different every story is tragic but there's a lot of similarities it's happening at a young age they're doing things that are as i said in the speech today that are unimaginable for us to even comprehend Um, and basically are it's it's modern day slavery and most of them have drug or alcohol problems because that's the only way they can deal with what they're going through at the time and so i'm just proud of first lady marty kemp i mean she is on a mission she was watching some tv show the other day i think it was on jeffrey epstein Mm -hmm. and some of what he'd been doing and i can't repeat on the radio the words that she was saying i said honey you got to calm down she goes we got to go after these people i mean she is she is furious about this and she has learned so much and uh, i don't know of anybody in the country other than the white house and ivanka that's doing more to raise awareness i'm very proud of her efforts but also the grace commission you know speaker pro tem jan jones and chris carr on that a lot of people that's been in the trenches for years and we're starting to make a difference and we're going to continue that this year we've got some legislation to work on making sure that these women or men, whoever it is that's being trafficked, can testify in court without the fear of retaliation and look at tougher statutes to put the Johns away and really go after the people that are profiting from this evil industry. And then we're gonna um, continue to work on the, you know, just giving awareness. We're doing training for state employees now that uh, has really resonated with people. It takes 30 minutes. It's on the Department of Administrative Services website. This where all Georgians can know the signs of human trafficking or sex trafficking and be on the lookout. And if they see something, then they can say something and report it to the local authorities. I interviewed uh, one of Ivanka Trump's aides who was with her the other day and
3: noted that Delta has really stepped up. Uh, on this issue in in Georgia nationally. I've actually talked to uh, executives at Delta who have told me some of the horror stories that they've dealt with and recognize it and now do play promos on on certain flights to try to recognize it.
10: Yeah, definitely great corporate leaders like Delta have stepped up, so has UPS. I've talked to uh, David Abney about that as well because their drivers are out everywhere all the time, Um, you know, in airports and driving trucks and in neighborhoods. Um, but there's, there's a lot of other people now that are really starting to pick that up. I know just since we announced the training, uh, we've had state agencies that have said, we are, we are making it mandatory for all our employees. That's going to be tens of thousands of people that will get trained. And I think there's going to be o- other corporate agencies, nonprofits, and others. And Marty's working very hard. She's going to, you know, rotary clubs, civic groups, church groups, anybody that will have her to uh to talk about the training and raise awareness and that's really what we need
3: mm-hmm. it is Eric Erickson here I had a conversation yesterday with Governor Brian Kemp that's what you're listening to right now when we come back the conclusion of the interview I asked him about Kelly Leffler about fetal heartbeat legislation I even asked him about Jake fromm leaving the University of Georgia when we come back I've got Governor Brian Kemp the conclusion of his interview and Kelly Leffler's got a new ad out I'll play for you it is Eric Erickson here across the state of Georgia. The phone number, if you want to join us, eight seven seven nine seven eric 877 If you want to join our conservative army of activists where you get emails or text messages as needed to make it easy for you to call your legislator as things uh, move forward in the legislature, and oh, we're going to have to talk about some of that. Um, after his, the governor talking about adoption reform and the Speaker of the House already out trying to scuttle some of the adoption reform efforts. Uh, we will get into that. But uh, I did talk to the governor about uh, his State of the State speech yesterday. We went through the the parts of the speech, uh, education, health care, gangs, human trafficking, and also adoption reform. I also asked him about Kelly Loeffler and Jake Frum. I want to bring you now the conclusion of my interview. Uh, yesterday in the governor's office, with Governor Brian Kemp. You mentioned, let me just read the line. As a pro-life governor, I believe we need to protect the unborn and the born. We have to defend those in the womb and then champion those when they leave the delivery room. Uh, Incredibly sad how many children are abandoned in our hospitals, hundreds every year, living, breathing babies, discarded, forgotten, innocent, full of potential, now wards of the state. We've talked about this in the past. You were at uh, the Clark's Christmas Kids uh, fundraiser for foster kids. We've got a lot of kids who are wards of the state, and adoption continues domestically and internationally. The, the cost just continues to spiral out of control, taking a lot of people out of the market who could adopt.
10: Well, I got when I got back down to the office right after I finished my speech and shook a few hands, I picked my phone up, one of the first texts I had was from an individual that him and his wife were going through the adoption process right now. And he said, I'm so glad y'all are taking this up. He said, I've been so frustrated, and I think he actually saw a post that Jeff Duncan had posted after the eggs and issues breakfast um, saying he was going to support us in our efforts, which I certainly appreciate and never never doubted that. But he was like, I'm so glad y'all are taking this on. My wife and I are going through this right now, and it's so frustrating. And that's what's happening out there. There was a lot of really good work that got done two years ago, as I mentioned in the speech today, thanking Governor Deal and the legislature. But there's more we can do to, to reduce the costs, reduce the red tape, and make it easier for these kids to get adopted and make it easier on the parents to adopt them. Uh, but we still have a lot of work to do in the future as well, which is why we're going to do the commission. So two of the
3: proposals, the uh, triple the adoption tax credit from $2,000 to $6,000, and also lower the age at which you can adopt from 25 to 21.
10: Which just gets more people into the system to make them eligible to adopt, to adopt and then The the way the tax credit's going to work, it's going to happen in the first few years of of the adoption. Uh, So that'll allow people to help offset some of the upfront costs, and then it'll go back to the the tax credit that's already in there now, the $2,000, until they become of legal age.
3: Were there things you wanted to mention but just ran out of time, ran out the clock of the speech, Are, uh, other initiatives that you want to focus on?
10: Well, I tell you, that speech was longer than it was <laughs> last year, so I don't really know what else we could have got in there. I mean, I saw the AJC article that wrote about, you know, what I mentioned and what I didn't mention, but mm-hmm. there's all kind of issues that everybody's speculating on. Um, that's part of the legislative process. I mean, I wanted to lay out what my priorities were and what the budget is doing, and now's the time for the... You know the speaker and the lieutenant governor did that at the eggs and issues the other day, and now is their time to get a look at our budget reductions and and what our priorities are, and they certainly have theirs, and we'll work through that. But we've got a great team down here. We're working very hard, and I think we're going to have a great year, and we're going to have good things to talk about when the twenty twenty session's over with.
3: I, I I one of the things I noticed there there were some bits in, uh, but not a lot as much as in the past. Uh, the outside of Atlanta economic development I know the other day you noted how many projects have been done outside of Atlanta from from Road to to you name it all over the state and, and still their the University of Georgia has their analysis they came out where they expect the north of I-20 area to be doing so well but south of I-20 is going to be a rec- in a recession almost this year.
10: Well that's the challenge that we face um, I, but I think my, my purview is because I know I've done business there. I've been to all these counties. There's a great opportunity in all parts of our state, you know, not just Atlanta or Augusta or Savannah or Macon or what have you. And we've got to start selling that message, not only here but around the world. You know, I cut the ribbon on a Walmart beef s- facility in Thomasville the other day, day that's affecting, you know, 600 new jobs down there. Uh, they said it was, I thought it was a $90 million investment. They kept saying it was 140000000 million. Mm. I'm sure they know better than I right. do. Uh, but we've done great. Like that, that project right there, that's huge for that area. You mm-hmm. know, Taurus moved their corporate headquarters to Bainbridge. You know, so there's some really good things going on down there. But we've got to figure out a way to stop the loss of population decrease in rural areas. And you can't do that unless you have good economic opportunity and good health care. And that's really what we've been focused on. You know, we put a lot of money in the budget last year for um, educating more doctors that are going to be focused on rural parts of our state. And I think you're going to see the needle continue to move. It's not something that's going to change overnight, but it's, you know, after, you know, if we do this day in, day out for the next several years, I think you'll start seeing some movement.
3: Related to that, I, I think so much Wilkinson County, where when I was practiced law, I was there a lot, very poor, very rural county, mm-hmm. not a lot of infrastructure there. Uh, and it, it seems like those areas of the state are so defined by county boundaries and... It, There should be some shared resource level down there, but then you've also got the issue of a lot of counties don't want to work with other counties down there.
10: Yeah, and that's what's frustrating, I think, (laughs) from a state level, and sometimes no matter how much we want to help, if you don't have a good local government, I mean, you know this as a former city (laughs) council member, you got to have people that are willing to work with the state, that are willing to figure out ways to put skin in the game as well. And we have a, a lot of great counties and cities that do that but unfortunately we have some that do not want to change so we're focused on the ones that want to change part of our rural strike team is to develop and um or identify and help get site ready or, or get project shovel ready i guess is a better word for mega sites you know big projects of regional significance and try to we need more mega sites in our state we don't have enough right now that's an exciting thing that we're doing in rural georgia but also training for the local economic developers that want it from the department of economic development to help them better sell um you know projects of of that size but also work with their local folks that want to expand and we got to continue to work on the workforce to make sure that we have people that can fill those jobs if a company's expanding last question for you here as as we wrap
3: up The, the most controversial decision you've made as governor so far if you believe the headlines, is Senator Leffler's nomination. <laughs> and uh, uh, among grassroots conservatives, there, there was some grumbling at first, and, of course, the media tried to play up the drama here. Uh, how would you assess her first? Uh, she hasn't been there very long, but but her roll out and, and move up to Washington.
10: Well, I, I think Kelly's doing great. I mean, she's a very hardworking person, which is one reason I chose her. I think people will see that through her service in the United States Senate. She's also very conservative. I know that because mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time with her. I've known her for a long time. and She's been involved in the Republican Party for a long time. You know, a lot of the folks that were clamoring on social media, they, they d- either didn't know or forgot that she chaired the Victor, Victory Committee in 2010, mm-hmm. which was the, the funding arm of the state Republican Party when Sue Everhart was chairman to help Governor Deal get reelected and help us sweep the ticket. Uh, in 2010, which I was part of that, you know, when I ran for Secretary of State. So, you know, Kelly's been in, you know, on our side for a very long time. And, and as time goes by, people are going to see more and more that she is very conservative. But she's also very smart, and she's a great businesswoman. And she brings, you know, it's like I said when, when we did the, the press conference announcing her. You know, she's like President Trump, an outsider business person, and like Senator David Perdue, an outside business person, and I'm sending them some reinforcements to Washington. And I think that's exactly what you're going to see.
3: Well, I, I say that's your most controversial thing that's been done so far because looking at the polling for the governor of the state of Georgia, even now the president from the Mason-Dixon polling, I remember distinctly a lot of editorials being written about how you were dooming the GOP for signing the fetal heartbeat legislation, and doesn't exactly look that way.
10: Well, I don't know that Georgians are going to punish anybody that has run for a statewide office on a platform like we did and then just simply goes about doing what they told people they right. would do. I think that's what's been missing in politics, quite honestly. That's what we're working on this year. You know, we didn't, we passed the heartbeat bill last year. Well, you know, part of my campaign promise was to do adoption reform and foster care reform. So that's what we're working on this year, you know, continue to work on health care. Fulfilling the teacher pay raise which I promise, you know, continuing to work on going after street gangs and drug cartels and having a great economy. And um, you know, I'm I'm not resting on my laurels, I'm working hard. I know you can never let your guard down in these offices. I'm plugging hard and my staff is as well every single day. What do you think, UGA Jake Frum leaving? <laughs>
3: What, what are you thinking about next year's team? Well,
10: I've been looking at legal options to force Jake <laughs> to come back to the University of Georgia, but I haven't found uh, anything where we could do that yet. I wish him the best. He's a great kid. I know him, and I know his family, and, uh, you know, he's a great dog, damn good dog, if you will, and he's gonna he's going to do well in life for sure. But I think, you know, Kirby was obviously ready for that. They got a great quarterback coming in. I've read some stuff where he's the – you know, number three ranked corner quarter, uh, quarterback after Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, so that can get us a national championship, I believe. Well, my apologies to the Georgia Tech fans who had to sit through that, but I feel obligated to ask you. All right, hey, look, I'm excited about what's happening to Georgia Tech too. We need—I told people that the UGA Tech game, we need that rivalry to get better. So I'm pulling for Coach Collins as well. Works for me, Governor Kemp. Thanks very much. Have a great day. Thank you. Governor Brian Kemp, I sat down with him in his
3: office yesterday. Uh, one of the things I, I want to circle back to as well is uh, with Jeff Duncan, uh, this this issue of the adoption and foster care reform. Uh, Jeff Duncan and Brian Kemp, hugely supportive of reform and expansion, making it easier to adopt, making it more affordable to adopt. Very, very expensive uh, to adopt. And they want to do what they can at the state level to help that and also urge the federal government. One of the the more interesting aspects of this, though, is that Governor Kemp wants to form a commission to actually go through the adoption process in the state and find new ways to make it more affordable, uh, find new ways to support the adoption uh, care industry in the state of Georgia, connecting parents to potential uh, children and the Speaker of the House is already out complaining and saying he doesn't know why we need to do this. Uh, I want to circle back though to, to the Lieutenant Governor play up. If you weren't here yesterday, I spoke to the Lieutenant Governor in the first hour uh, and his three big initiatives as well uh, now that we spent some time with the Governor's initiatives.
8: Yeah, three three big areas of focus for me. One is we, we had a lot of good ground we gained last year around health care. Uh, you know, look, healthcare care is a big deal because you know the Feds have essentially punted on the issue, and and what we're seeing is states now being empowered to take more and more of an active role in reforming the way healthcare is delivered. The governor uh, and did, did a great job uh, and his team on the 1115 and 1332 waivers, which last year uh, we put together in the General Assembly, but allowed us to to really kind of reform the way we deliver. Uh, we made great great strides in telehealth and, and modernizing that and and uh, transparency across the the, the hospital systems. Now, this year, we're going to spend a lot of time around price transparency and the right to shop. Uh, I don't think there's an industry out there that operates like the healthcare industry does. And that, you know, I spoke to a bunch of bankers last night. and I said, what if you could give a loan and you didn't have to tell anybody what the interest rate was until three weeks after they signed the document? <laughs> right. And, 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 and I looked out the room and I, I said, half of you have this shock look on your face and half of you have this, you know, you know, jealous look on your face. Um, but that's the way healthcare operates. We don't know how much it costs until it shows up in our mailbox. Right. And so we think there's an opportunity to do two things: to blend quality and price, and empower the patient or the customer to be able to make that decision. Uh, we think technology now is ready to to embrace that data and be able to to put that in front of the uh, the consumer's hands. Secondly, we're going to focus on foster care. Uh, you know, look, uh, the state of Georgia is the parent when, in, in a foster care system and uh, I think we can do a better job of taking care of kids in foster care. We're going to explore ways to to deliver health care and mental health services better for not just the the foster kid, but the families that support those foster kids. Uh, We want it to be easier for them to get them to the pediatrician or to a specialist or to a therapist to walk them through some of the most difficult days of their life. And then secondly, think about this. 18-year-old foster kid essentially ages out of the system. So the day you turn 18, you age out of the system, and it's it's here you go, you're ready for life, or at least you need to be ready for life. 700 kids a year get that message when they turn 18. The stats are alarming. 97% of those kids end up in chronic poverty. 71% of those of, of the girls end up pregnant within the first year. And only 11% have a high school diploma or GED equivalent. We can do better. We will do better. And I want Georgia not just to say we're the number one state to do business in. I want them. I want foster kids to say it's the number one state to be a foster kid in. Wow! And last, and, and, and last, I, we want to be the technology capital of the East Coast. We're mm-hmm. going to push hard. Uh, we just put together a task force yesterday, headed by Johnny Isaacson, Bud Peterson, Paul Judge, Paul Bowers. These are this is a working group that's going to advise me on ways to attract investment from around the world, to keep and incubate big ideas here, to invite the best and brightest from around the world to to bring their big ideas and develop them. Um, we think there's a great opportunity for Georgia, all of Georgia, not just not just Atlanta but all of Georgia, to become the technology capital of the East Coast.
3: That was Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan yesterday, who spoke with me before the State of the State address by telephone. Uh, When we come back, Kelly Leffler. Has is rolling out her first advertisement uh, in her campaign for election. She will be on the ballot in November, of course. The Democrats having trouble finding someone to run against her. And there is news on the impeachment front. We've got to get back to news in Washington. We will take your phone calls as well. 877 97 eric 8779737425 Yeah y'all seriously um I will send out a recipe I will if you want to be on the list I'll, so what you do is you text recipe to 33777 and you get a text message back from the system I use that asks for your email address. So you send by text your email address, and you automatically are signed up for the recipe list. And every week, if I remember and I'm not busy, I send out a recipe. I don't sell the list. Uh, you're not going to get ads and spam and stuff like that. Uh, it's just it's a recipe. Uh, why? Because I think that uh, cooking is becoming a lost art. I love to cook. And also... I think breaking bread with people is a very important thing in order to build community, and we no longer build community in person. We build it uh, more often online, and our community inevitably looks like ourselves when the community around us is not. I think it's very important to engage in your local community. Uh, Scripture tells us community is important. Uh, Relationships, face-to-face relationships are important, and cooking is a way to get people in a room together in your messy kitchen and enjoy each other. So text RECIPE to 33777 if you want that. I will find a recipe to send out today. Uh, Kelly Leffler has her new ad out. Uh, I asked the governor about her. You, you heard what he said, and here is her ad. Gives you a sense of where she's headed to try to shut down any potential threat from the right.
1: My first bill called to end impeachment.
2: Kelly Leffler.
1: My second bill supported killing the world's deadliest terrorist.
2: Kelly Loeffler, a businesswoman, not a career politician.
1: China is attacking American jobs. Iran is attacking American troops. And Congress only attacks the president. It has to stop. I'm Kelly Loeffler. I approve this message because it's time to get to work.
3: That's Kelly Loeffler's ad, a uh, 30-second ad. She's going to be spinning this around the state. You know, uh, interestingly enough, I, I went back and I looked at 2018. So the, the, the buzz out there is some conservative groups are still urging Doug Collins to get in the race. They want Doug. They think Doug would be the guy. Here, here's the problem. I mean, at, at a fundamental level, Doug Collins uh, would have to raise a lot of money uh, for perspective. Brian Kemp total in 2018 raised $22 million to run for governor. Stacey Abrams actually outraised him. Uh, Stacey Abrams raised $25 million, and I realize that uh, everyone says that she um, did not raise as much. That's not true. She raised $25 million, a lot of it from out-of-state, most of it from out-of-state. Brian Kemp raised $22 million, mostly from in-state. Kelly Loeffler has already put into her campaign $20 million. She has cash on hand, only $2 million less than the total money raised by Brian Kemp for 2018. Collins would have to raise a whole lot of money and even then would probably not be able to. Now, it's not always the person with the most money who wins. I mean, Brian Kemp beat Stacey Abrams. He did not have as much money as she had. She also had a lot of outside groups pouring money into the race. That's true. But to build the campaign team, to build the war chest, to build the grassroots operation, to build the door-to-door, to to build the ads, to build the mail, to build the targeting, to build the robocalls, to build it all, to travel... To knock on doors, to go face, to see people face-to-face, it costs a lot of money. And she's already starting with roughly the amount of money Brian Kemp used to win the state. So it'll be very hard. I, I increasingly get questions from people, is Collins going to do it? And I increasingly hear from people close to Collins that, no, he's not going to do it. And I suspect that that's right. I, I suspect he's not actually going to challenge her. I think she's going to be the senator and the problem is going to be on the democratic side. They don't have anybody to run against her. We are now it is January 17th. Everyone has known about Kelly Leffler for 6 weeks since the beginning of December right after Thanksgiving word leaked out it was going to be her and the Democrats still can't find someone to match her to 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 line up with her. That's going to be a problem for the Democrats. Uh, and they're still fighting over who to who to challenge David Perdue. Now, when we come back, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time on the adoption issue. The Speaker of the House threatening to throw a monkey wrench in the governor and lieutenant governor's plans to make adoption more affordable and, and review how they can approve the adoption, false security situation in the state. And we got to get back to Washington. The president has announced the lawyers who will be involved in his impeachment case. The Democrats, of course, are melting down already because of it. Anything the president does causes them to melt down. And then. We need to turn the spotlight back to Iran and Iraq and the killing of Soleimani. Okay, a quick timeout for a new sponsor I'm actually excited about, but it's confession time in the process of me being excited about the sponsor. So, you know, after all the lung stuff I had several years ago, it took me a long time before I was cleared to actually go back and do serious exercise at the gym. And I finally decided to go back to CrossFit about three months ago. Now, I've been paying for the private lessons instead of going to the open hours uh, because I don't want anybody to see my fat behind working out right now uh, as I'm doing burpees and uh, double unders and all the other awful stuff. Uh, but I'm only going three days a week because it's expensive to do the private stuff. I got to have to do something at home because I got a couple of days a week where I got to be burning calories when I'm not doing it. And I was really thinking about the Peloton option, but I don't want to pay a ton for Peloton and it's expensive. Well, I discovered Echelon and now I'm really actually pleased that Echelon is a sponsor of the show. It's alive. live and on-demand studio classes in your home. You can use your iPad. uh, You can put them on your fitness bike. You can put them on, uh, they've got them on the Apple TV or, or your TV. You can stream it. You can get them on your iPad. They've even got one of the mirror options where you can do the exercises in the mirror. Join hundreds of thousands of people, myself included now, Uh, Getting fit with Echelon. You don't have to pay a ton for Peloton. You can get an Echelon bike today for under $1,000. So go to EchelonFit.com slash Eric. Learn about their limited time, free Apple iPad, and complete details of the exclusive offer. Echelon, it's your time. Make the most of it. And don't go broke doing it. That's E-E-E-C-H-E-L-O-N. E-C-H-E-L-O-N Fit dot com slash eric echelonfit.com slash eric y'all i'm if i can do it you can do it it's great and we'll get in shape together hello and welcome it is eric erickson here the eric erickson show across the state of georgia from my flagship wgau in athens georgia i say that intentionally because if you're in the athens area i i just got a note uh, it appears that at the beginning of Mar- March 4th at 6.30 p.m., I will be speaking to the college Republicans at the University of Georgia. Uh, so I will be at UGA March 4th. Uh, so if you are listening to me on WGAU or anywhere else, uh, you I'm assuming the college Republicans will say, come on by. But I'll be hanging out with the college Republicans at the University of Georgia on March 4th. Um, So be advised. The phone number, if you would like to be a part of the program today, 877-97-ERIC. That's 877-973-7425 is the phone number. And uh, we got to move back to Washington stuff. But before we do, just a quick word on the governor and lieutenant governor's uh, adoption and foster care reforms. Uh, There are three things up front that the governor wants to do. Uh, the first is to lower the age at which you can adopt someone. Right now, the minimum age that you can adopt someone in Georgia is not not the age of the adoptee, but the person who is doing the adopting. You got to be 25. They're lowering it to 21. That's what the governor wants. The the second thing the governor wants to do is to increase the adoption tax credit in the state of Georgia. Uh, Right now it is $2,000. The governor wants to increase it to $6,000. The third thing the governor wants to do is he wants to establish a commission that can go through the adoption laws of the state and see what can be improved and report back for the special for the uh, legislative session next year in 2021. The speaker of the House David Ralston has come out and said he doesn't see why we need to do a commission uh, that could be hijacked by special interests on adoption. And you need to understand why the speaker is opposed to a commission on adoption. One of the things that happened with some of the adoption updates a couple of years ago is some of the Senate, in fact, a majority, well, not quite a majority of the Senate, uh, they wound up scuttling it at the request of Governor Deal. Uh, they put in a provision that would protect faith-based adoption agencies in Georgia. Under Georgia law, uh, there are lots of adoption agencies in the state that are secular institutions. They don't care whether you're gay, straight, Muslim, Jewish, Christian, atheist. They they don't care. But there are some of the best, and I actually do mean this, they, they are really the best adoption agencies in the state, tend to be run by churches, Catholic adoption agencies and Protestant adoption agencies. Uh, There's a great one uh, in Macon. Covenant Care uh, is is a wonderful place. There are some great ones in the Atlanta area and around the state. There are some great faith-based adoption agencies affiliated with churches. And the faith-based adoption agencies do care about the faith of their parents because adoption is a ministry of the church. And so if you believe that marriage is between a man and a woman— then you're going to uh, insist that the adoption, adopting party be married and that it be a heterosexual Christian marriage. And over the last several years around the country, uh, gay rights activists have been uh, trying to shut down faith-based adoption agencies. In particular, uh, in Massachusetts and California and others, faith-based adoption agencies have been targeted, uh, and they either have to abandon the faith criteria Or go out of business, and the Catholic adoption agencies in New England are all shutting down, which means there are less places to go now in New England to adopt kids. The gay rights community has decided that they're going to prioritize gay rights over the adoption of kids. Because they don't want a child to be adopted into a household they find bigoted, what you and I would call a traditional Christian family that believes in uh, traditional Christian Christian orthodoxy. And so they want to shut those down, and they want to uh, put them out of business. And this is becoming a fight in Georgia— In certain locales around the state that have become more and more progressive, there is increasing hostility to faith-based adoption agencies that uh, won't adopt to people outside their faith or won't adopt to gay couples or to singles. And the argument that I would make is that we need to prioritize every available option to place a child into a good household, gay, straight, Muslim, Jew, Christian. And the more adoption agencies we have committed to placing children, the better off the children are. The gay rights activists would say that we are better off prioritizing love, not hate, and tolerance, and we should not be allowing any adoption agency to place a child with a bigoted couple, with a Christian couple, with a Muslim couple, with an Orthodox Jewish couple, um, because those couples uh, don't affirm the LGBTQ community, and therefore the child will be raised as a bigot. I think that's a bunch bunch of nonsense. I think that if you've got a faith-based adoption agency and they will only adopt Christians, well, let them. You don't have to use them. There are plenty of state adoption agencies out there. But when you restrict the pool of adoption agencies to conform to your ideology, uh, you are restricting the availability of children to get out of uh, being wards of the state and into loving families. The Speaker of the House has sided with the LGBTQ community on this. Uh, He doesn't want this fight. Uh, He doesn't want to antagonize Hollywood. He doesn't want to antagonize the left. Uh, And he's okay with shutting down Christian adoption agencies in the state when that fight comes. He's not willing to grant them state protections. Texas, Mississippi, Missouri, Oklahoma, Kansas, Nebraska, they've all passed laws saying that uh, faith-based adoption agencies have a place in the state and they can do business with the state even if they discriminate in favor of their faith. The Speaker was instrumental with Nathan Deal in blocking a piece of legislation like that in Georgia several years ago, and he has blocked it ever since. And he's afraid that if a commission were to be set up, that uh, social conservatives would use the commission as a place to advocate for legislation that would protect faith-based adoption agencies. And that's the reality of it. He's he, he's not actually saying that publicly, but you need to know that's it. And behind the scenes, uh, members of the House are openly saying that the speaker is siding with the the gay rights community over the faith based adoption community. The speaker represents Blue Ridge, Georgia, which has the highest per capita number of, of gay couples in the state of Georgia. It's a very gay friendly community. It's a wonderful community. Absolutely wonderful up in Blue Ridge. I love going to Blue Ridge. Uh, it, it also has a, a very large progressive community now and the speaker is plugged into that community. Uh, I- those people vote for him, and he's protecting their interest, and they're deeply hostile to faith-based adoption agencies, according to those I've spoken to in the House of Representatives. So he is willing to scuttle a commission to make adoption more efficient and expeditious and better in the state of Georgia, because he's afraid that social conservatives, particularly Christian conservatives, might be able to to get legislation drafted to protect faith based adoption agencies in the state. Uh, he won't say that publicly, but according to his colleagues in the House, there you have it. Uh, which again is why you should be texting the word "speaker" to five two eight eight six and telling the state legislature to oust the Speaker of the House. He's not working for you guys um, now. Uh, We will continue to follow these issues. I want to make you a good activist. I want to be able to help you connect to your member of the state legislature. And the best way to do that is for you to text the word ARMY. Text the word ARMY to 33777. Text the word ARMY to 33777. That joins you into my conservative activist army where we fill you in on what's happened in the state legislature and get you the contact information to your member of the state legislature. As the adoption fight gears up and opposition grows to uh, daring to have a commission to make adoption easier in the state of Georgia, I'll be able to easily connect you to your member of the state legislature to push them to support this commission. All it is is a commission. Uh, that the speaker is threatened by a commission is, is astonishing. But there you have it. That's him. He's a petty little man. Uh, I shouldn't say little, but nonetheless. Now, the phone number here, 877-97-ERIC, 877 973 Do you know what Kabuki Theater is? Let me read you just uh, the, the basic Wikipedia entry. Kabuki is a classical Japanese dance drama. Kabuki theater is known for the stylization of its drama and for the elaborate makeup worn by some of the performers. Now, if you don't know the details of what Kabuki theater is, uh, Kabuki theater, like other traditional forms of drama in Japan, uh, is performed in long, elaborate programs that stretch out the audience's escape from the day to day world to a full day of entertainment. The, the individual plays could last an entire day. Some are shorter, they're highly sequenced, they are elaborate structures. The costumes are overwhelming. The, the, the theater, the art of it, is more important than the substance of it. Forget the plot. It is the elaborate nature of it. It is the beautiful costumes. It is the makeup. It is the masks. It is the sword play. It is the fighting. It's it's an incredibly structured, beautiful presentation. If you've never been to kabuki theater, you need to find it and go to it. It lasts. they've got short wins in this country. In Japan it can be an all-day affair. And in, in this country, you can find short staged kabuki productions. They're incredible. Kabuki theater is also what happens so much in Washington, D.C. What we're seeing with impeachment in Washington, D.C. is kabuki theater. It is an elaborate presentation, complete with costumed impeachment marshals marching across the floor from the House to the Senate as the media talks about it, it's historic, it's monumental, this is sacred, this is sacramental, this is historic. It involves the chief justice of the United States in black robes marching across from the United States Supreme Court into the Senate, accompanied by four senators, two Republican and two Democrat, marching to the floor of the Senate, swearing in the senators and presiding. It involves the procession of the senators coming into the Senate sitting, the camera panning away from them so you cannot see the senators any longer, to deny them the ability to participate in the ritual spectacle, and the act of not being able to see them as part of the theater. Instead you see the impeachment managers on the floor and the president's prosecution as they begin to make elaborate arguments, and Jeffrey Tubin and others on TV opine on us was a substantive argument, and I'm not sure how the Republicans are going to be able to spin their way out of this, and then the Republicans spin their way out of this. Oh, this is Ella Dershowitz who's connected to Jeffrey Epstein, and we can't take this man seriously. And oh, Kenneth Starr, what a hypocrite. And and the, the media plays their role. It's a huge spectacle. And the spectacle is more important than the substance. Because the substance is. They've already decided on the Republican side he's not guilty. And they've already decided on the Democratic side that he's guilty of sin. Here is Maisie Hirono, the senator from Hawaii, from January.
1: The possibility Including you'll perhaps. vote to acquit him. You you could
6: maybe vote to acquit him, is what you're saying, is what I hear you saying.
0: I'm gonna vote on the basis of the facts. And the okay. facts are Very- that he committed an impeachable act and I will vote to convict him. That
3: that that was from, that was Mazie Hirono, we haven't even had the trial begin. Senator Blumenthal says the president's actions deserve the strongest penalty, removal from office. Senator Warren says has she seen enough evidence before the trial begins to vote for removal? Yes, she says. Here's Amy Klobuchar on CNN. To acquit the president. Uh, at this point,
7: I don't see that. Uh, but I'm someone that wants to look at every single count. I've made very clear I think
1: this is impeachable conduct.
7: Okay.
3: That was Amy Klobuchar. Here's Senator Michael Bennett saying I'm likely to vote for conviction. Here's Kamala Harris uh, with Katie Turr on MSNBC.
0: If the vote was put to you today, I know this is an if, uh, to convict the president in the Senate and remove him from office, would you be voting yes? Yes, based on everything I've seen,
7: yeah.
3: And the trial hasn't even started. And yet what you're going to see is the media blowing up Republicans, blowing up Republicans for deciding to acquit the president and ignoring the fact that Democrats, before the trial even begins, have been coming out saying, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm going to vote. I'm going to vote to find him guilty. It's all elaborate theater and spectacle. The outcome is foreordained. He'll be found not guilty, and the media will cry. This this gets to my point that I was making about the kabuki theater of it and, and the media so critically focused on the Republicans and not the Democrats. MSNBC uh, let Chris Van Hollen come on, Senator from Maryland. Uh, listen to him.
5: And, uh, you know, we have John Bolton who described what went down, what went down as a drug deal. Uh, we had this GAO report that finds that the administration broke The law by withholding aid and Mick Mulvaney and others are right in the middle of that. Uh, So we need four uh, Republican senators. Uh, And I think the pressure will build because if you're not willing to call witnesses and get relevant documents at a trial, you are for fixing and rigging the trial.
3: You're for fixing and rigging the trial. Uh, Chris Van Hollen's mind is already made up. And, And, you know, here's the other other issue is, let's say the Republicans offer no witnesses. Let's say they decide that they're not going to offer any witnesses. Well, then there's no evidence. If no evidence has been presented, how do you vote to convict? And yet they're already voting to convict. I mean, it's already done. And and this, this liberal fan fiction that somehow the... Chief Justice of the United States of America is going to intervene and and do this. I mean, again, here's Jake Tapper on on CNN as they're doing the swearing in ceremony yesterday for the impeachment trial. Senate likes to keep records.
6: And the oath is that they receive the information and and decide impartially, objectively. Well, there's the special uh, impeachment trial oath that they take, and it's it's different. It's different from their general oath of
8: office. That's Elizabeth Warren uh, signing the oath book right there.
6: We've uh, they swear to do impartial justice, swear to do impartial justice, although many of them on the both sides of the aisle have already said how they're going to vote uh, when it comes to removing the president. Let's continue to listen. In.
3: Yeah, we're, we're going to be impartial. We're going to hear the evidence and they've already made up their minds. Here's the president on the impeachment trial,
2: trial starting next week. What's your view on how long it should take? Well, I think it should go very quickly. It's a hoax. It's a hoax. Everybody knows that it's a it's a complete hoax, the whole thing with Ukraine. So you have a perfect phone call. This is a call fortunate. It was actually two phone calls. You people don't report that. There were two calls. They were both perfect calls. In fact, probably among the nicest calls I've ever met made to foreign leaders. Now, so you have these perfect calls and everybody says it now. Before they knew they were so good because fortunately they were transcribed, you had other people saying terrible things about the calls. You had a fake whistleblower that wrote a report that bore no relationship to what was said. Everything was false. You have now the Ukrainian president and the foreign minister of Ukraine saying, there was nothing done wrong. In fact, they said there was absolutely no pressure whatsoever. Everything was perfect, and they impeach
3: there's the president now when we come back as uh, someone you know this is uh, one of the problems with Bernie Sanders you've also got this problem with Joe Biden although not to the same extent I mentioned yesterday that all these old sound bites of Bernie Sanders and this deep treasure trove of opposition research on him that's going to start flooding out uh, the, we someone went back into the archives of the Clinton impeachment and found Joe Biden. Talking about the need for witnesses. I want to play that audio for you when we come back. Right now, though, I want to remind you that this hour is brought to you by Dynamic Money. You heard Chris Burns earlier in the ad. Uh, I could not do this program without uh, sponsors. Uh, we're building advertisers as we reach out across the state of Georgia. But first, Liberty of Georgia and, and Dynamic Money—I I couldn't have gotten this off the ground with them. And, and this is my time to tell you, Dynamic Money, Chris Burns—he actually is my personal financial guy with my wife and me. Um, it, it's consumer finance stuff. It's not—I mean, he does our manages our retirement funds and four hundred one k. But really, it was I needed someone to teach us how to budget and teach my kids how to budget and that's where Chris and his team at Dynamic Money shine in addition to managing my retirement 401k if you need somebody to teach you budgeting to to get you on a fiscal plan to give you some peace of mind and help you with retirement go to dynamicmoney.com talk to Chris's team they're good people they're not commissions based they only give you sound advice I'm I'm not even gonna play you the audio because it's so stupid. Uh, it really is. Uh, Manu Raju is a reporter for CNN. He used to be at Politico. I have referred to him for years as Mitch McConnell's stenographer. Uh, dude would write whatever McConnell told him just as as gospel truth. Uh, I, he, he's a fine reporter, but you know he, he's one of those reporters who he wants access to leadership to get stories, and so whatever they tell him, he runs with and doesn't question, and they all know it. Uh, And it's just – it's a joke on both sides that he does. And and I don't mean that disparagingly against him. Most reporters do that. And he, for years, uh, as a conservative who who was deeply critical of stuff behind the scenes with McConnell and knew what was happening behind the scenes, I would read Manu Raju and I could say, uh, for sure, yep, this is is the McConnell team. Uh, It's their talking points. Well, Martha McSally, uh, she is the Arizona senator who was appointed to John McCain's seat. And as Manu Raju went up to her to ask her about witnesses, which is perfectly within his right to do, she said she wasn't going to talk to him. He's a liberal hack. Holy Lord, you would have thought that she gunned him down in the street, given the press reaction. They are still today talking about it. They are outraged about it she herself got an interview on Fox News the media is condemning Fox News for giving her uh, time to go on and talk about Manu Raju the the the, the whole thing is silly i mean the the, the whole thing uh, listen so here she is on uh, well no i'm not going to play that cuz that that's just too long Um, she, she went on Fox. She said that he's a liberal. hack. She registered the domain liberal hack, uh, to play it up, to amplify it. The media is all about the media is in high dungeons about it. They're just so upset. You know, here's the reality on Martha McSally. She could lose her election in Arizona because the Republican base doesn't like her. And liberals in Arizona don't trust her. And she's a terrible candidate. When November rolls around, though, no one is going to go into the polling booth and say, oh, Manu Raju said something bad about a CNN reporter. I'm not going to vote for her. That that has absolutely nothing to do with it. No one is going to vote against her or for her because she attacked a CNN reporter, although the way the media is dragging this story out People might actually begin to vote for her because she got under their skin. She's not a good politician. She's a terrible campaigner. She ran a terrible campaign. She should have been able to beat Kristen Sinema, who, by the way, has turned out to be a a good Democratic senator to the extent there are some. And uh, McSally is probably going to lose. It will have nothing to do with this incident. It will have to do with whether or not the voters of Arizona trust her, particularly the Republican base, whether or not they turn out to support her. But it, it, the amount of time in this country now that the media in the United States decides to make itself the story is absurd. The antics of Jim Acosta. I, listen, I, I've, I've known Jim Acosta. I worked at CNN. I have thought highly of the guy. But these last couple of years, I've just been shaking my head at him. Man, the guy wants to be the story. He doesn't want to report the story. He wants to be the story. For all the people who ridicule conservatives saying all they want to do is own the left, you got a lot of reporters, including Acosta, who believe his job is to own the president, own own the right, get under their skin, make himself part of the story. It's just it's silly to see the spectacle and it is silly to see the media drag out the story and be as outraged as they are over the story. They're just making themselves – a part of a story as opposed to reporting the story, and that seems to be the antics of most of the media these days is to make themselves part of the story. Now, to his credit, Manu Raju did not try to make himself part of the story. Martha McSally dragged him in to become part of the story, but then the rest of the media really treated it like McSally had gunned the guy down as opposed to just calling him a liberal hack and then having the audacity to register the website. Come on, people. Move along. Get to the next story. By the way, by the way, I don't know if you know this or not, but a couple of weeks ago, the president of the United States took out uh, the, the the number two guy in Iran. Did, did you know that the president took out – the guy's name was Kasim Soleimani. The president had him killed two weeks ago. Did you know that? Did you know that just a couple of months ago, this young lady from Sweden took a yacht that belonged to a prince and sailed to the United States to rally the world against climate change? Did you, did you know that the Brazilian rainforest was on fire a few months ago? Did, did you know that uh, it, less than a year ago, the president of the United States had a summit in Singapore with North Korea? Did, did you know these things? My, how quickly the timeline moves. And we've moved on. Did you know that the Washington Post, about a month and a half ago, wasn't even that long ago, produced a treasure trove of documents obtained from the Pentagon under the Freedom of Information Act that showed that the military for the last decade has been lying about our strategy in Afghanistan and privately, privately admitted it wasn't working? in a in a think tank, internal think tank within the Pentagon, uh, they could not come up with a rationale for staying other than the budget, other than the money. My friends, I got to tell you, the media in the United States has, a, have you ever seen, have you ever seen um, Doug the dog in the movie Up?, you know the movie up but you know my son my 11 year old came to me the other day Gunnar uh he yes I I'm I'm Swedish Eric Eriksson my son is Gunnar yep Gunnar as the rest of my family calls him Gunnar um my my uncle Leif yes my my uncle is Leif Eriksson yes it is uh but my my uncle Leif him Gunnar uh Gunnar came to me and said dad I was able to watch the whole movie up even the sad part of the beginning, and I cried, and I watched it anyway. I, I was rather proud of him, <laughs> but in yeah, so I'm doing I'm doing my Doug the Dog impression right now. But so Doug the Dog in the movie Up is a dog that has a a, a device around his neck on, on his collar, and so his his antics can be translated into English. And so the the old man and the little boy, they land in in this place, and Doug the dog comes running up to him and, hello, hello, human, my name is Doug Squirrel, and he would turn and be distracted. The media is Doug the dog, Squirrel, turning every which way, completely distracted from everything that the media should be focusing on. We have story after story after story after story after story. And you know, just when I, I knew that people would move on from the, the Australian wildfires when it came out that most of them were overwhelmingly set by arson after the media had built it up as this climate change thing that the the the, the, the forests of, of Australia were spontaneously combusting because it was so hot because of climate change. Nope, turns out over two hundred people arrested for arson. They move on squirrel, move on to something else. And impeachment's gonna be forgotten in three weeks we're going to move on from the impeachment of the president of the united states to something else in 3 weeks. We don't even know what it is yet. We can't predict the future. That's one of the messages my buddy Chris Byrne says is is you can't predict the future. Don't don't plan your retirement trying to guess the market. Just just plan your retirement. Uh try to be stable. Um we're not, we're going to we're going to be a um have a situation where we we can't, we're going to move on. Everybody's going to forget it. One of the things that we shouldn't forget, though, is Afghanistan. We're going to be in a situation in another year where we're still going to be in Afghanistan. And for over a decade now, no one's really known why we're in Afghanistan anymore. My kids have a teacher in their school. He is being called up for another tour to Afghanistan. He's one of the more popular teachers. He's got a number of kids, his wife, his students, his friends, his other family, and he's leaving them to go to Afghanistan for what? Even a decade ago, even 10 years removed from 9-11, I could have told you why we were still in Afghanistan, because we hadn't successfully eliminated the Taliban and we were still propping up the government in Afghanistan that needed to stand up on its own, to take out the Taliban. We needed to be there for them, for that government, to help them be stable. But in the last decade, corruption has become systematic, systemic, endemic. Um, We, as a nation, no longer need to be there. We, as a nation have no reason to be there now. We're there because of inertia at this point. There's no justification. And yet the news cycle moves so quickly, we've all forgotten. We've all forgotten we're still there. But none of us can explain why we're there. Even the Pentagon can no longer explain it. There is no rationale for us being there. But we're fixated on impeachment right now. In three weeks, four weeks... We'll be moved on to something else. There'll be something major, something significant. There'll be a world of it, and we'll have all forgotten that the president had been impeached. We'll have all forgotten about Martha McSally. We'll move on, but our soldiers will still be in Afghanistan. They are hostage to our inability to pay attention to stories. And that's something we should consider. Some of you are going to be aggravated with me for this, um, but I want to, not because I'm in the cult, although I totally am. Um, I have, I, so I'm in in a radio, normally I, I brought, I've got a studio in my house, uh, but I'm actually in Atlanta today uh, and I've got next to me, I have my iPhone, next to it is my iPad, next to it is my MacBook Pro and on my wrist is my Apple Watch. I am in the cult and I make no bones about it. But I've been deeply critical of Apple in the, in the last year or two for a lot of decisions they've made uh, with Apple News. It sucks. Uh, Apple TV Plus isn't great. Um, I, I found some of the shows enjoyable, but it, it's I, I don't know what to make of this company right now. But one of the things that I, I continue to applaud Apple and now Facebook on is privacy. The federal government is insisting that Apple and Facebook put back doors Onto uh, WhatsApp for Facebook and your iPhone for Apple. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but if you've got a, if you're using iMessages on Apple, the the chat app, and you have blue bubbles in the texts, that is a very secure way to send a text message. It is encrypted end to end, meaning that uh, the federal government cannot intercept the message along the way and figure out what it is. It's highly secure. Uh, it is actually more secure. If you need to send someone a um a credit card number, for example, it's more secure to send it by text message by, by iMessage on Apple's app from iPhone to Apple, from Apple device to Apple device, than it is to actually do it over the telephone by voice or to do it by text message. Never do it by text message. If you're on an iPhone and you're getting a green bubble, it means you're using text message, which is highly unsecure. And Apple refuses to put a back door into devices. It, essentially, the federal government wants Apple to provide a way for the federal government, for example, the terrorist in uh, Florida who shot up the airbase there has an iPhone, and the federal government wants Apple to give it access. Well, the federal government has has found ways to break into iPhones, but has decided to make this a big spectacle to make Apple put a backdoor into its software. And, and they're not alone. European governments want it as well. The Australian government wants it as well. And Apple's saying no, that it has designed its services to be mathematically impossible for Apple itself to get into. If you get locked out of your iPhone, there is nothing Apple can do to help you. And there have been sad stories where people have died and families wanted to get into iPhones and get the pictures and memories. And Apple's like, I'm sorry, can't can't help you. And Facebook now with WhatsApp is saying the same thing, and, and the FBI and stuff are coming, out, oh, human trafficking and, and child pornography, and what are we going to do, and all the scare scenarios. Y'all, I'm sorry I am on the side of Apple and Facebook on this. If the United States government can get into your text messaging service and spy on you, so can China, so can Iran, so can Russia, so can malicious hackers. If Apple builds a backdoor for our government, they are building a backdoor for every bad guy on the planet, and you should be opposed to that. Don't be driven by the emotional argument. A bad guy cannot conduct a terrorist attack through chat message. He may be able to carry out some of the planning in conversation with someone else but he can't carry out the attack. To put the burden on Apple or Facebook or any other company to stop a terrorist, to stop a child pornographer, to stop a human trafficker, that's the government abdicating its responsibility. I am on the side of the companies because I am on the side of privacy in a day and age where every bit of our location is up for grabs to be sold and the government can use cell towers to find our GPS location and all all the like of it. I, I'm deeply concerned. And as a buddy of mine just texted me, he, he's more concerned about the federal government than he is the Chinese. I am too. The federal government, look at the FISA court. L- look at the stuff we're learning there. The, the federal government is deeply abusive of privacy laws in this country. I am totally on the side of these corporations, and please don't buy into the fear tactics by William Barr, who I deeply respect. But he's wrong on this issue, and I get why he's doing it. I totally do, and I get the concerns of the government, but no, absolutely not. Uh, Apple and Facebook are in the right here, and the media is trying to make them bad guys because they're essentially denying the media stories as well. How many times has the media run a story on what's inside someone's phone? Be with the corporations on this.
5: 18 plus.